It is Friday, October 21st, and this is People Every Day. It is now well after midnight, and the, with a capital T, new album is out. Hello, everyone. Janine Rubenstein here, and all the Swifties I know are swooning over their girl, Taylor Swift's brand new album, Midnight's. It's got all the angst and heartbreak fans have come to expect, and it's been all over my timeline since the clock struck 12. So get your red scarves ready, because later in the show, we're getting into all things Tay-Tay. But before that, we do have some other major stories stories to get to, including some that are frankly very unpleasant and perhaps triggering. So let's just get into the stories making big noise out there today. We have an update on Cordengate, or the Balthazar backlash, or whatever we're calling this developing saga. James Corden isn't sorry. As you recall, James Corden was banned for his alleged bad behavior at the trendy New York restaurant Balthazar when he allegedly yelled at a waiter. The eatery owner... Keith McNally then called out Corden on social media and called him, quote, the most abusive customer to my Balthazar server since the restaurant opened 25 years ago. Corden then apologized, according to McNally, who in short order declared the ban was dropped. Corden was recently interviewed by the New York Times to discuss his upcoming new series on Amazon. And when asked about the Balthazar incident, he didn't sound all that contrite. He told the outlet, I haven't done anything wrong on any level. So why would I ever cancel this interview? I was there. I get it. And added, I feel so zen about the whole thing because I think it's so silly. I just think it's beneath all of us. It's beneath you. It's certainly beneath your publication. It's good to keep in mind that part of the reason McNally banned the late night host initially was because he claimed this outburst wasn't an isolated incident when it came to Corden's behavior at his establishment. I mean, I know McNally said Corden apologized. Now Corden's saying he didn't do anything wrong. Who knows? But something I think we can all agree is beneath us is being unkind to anyone, including hardworking waitstaff. Moving on to another story we've been keeping tabs on this week, Dame Judi Dench has spoken, and Netflix has listened. Yesterday, we discussed the legendary actress's open letter to Netflix, asking that the streaming giant include a disclaimer to viewers that events on the hit series The Crown are fictionalized and are not portraying the figures depicted with complete accuracy. Netflix has since added a disclaimer to YouTube under the series' season five trailer that reads, quote, Inspired by real events, this fictional dramatization tells the story of Queen Elizabeth II and the political and personal events that shaped her reign. While it appears Netflix took Dench's comments to heart, Joy Behar doesn't think it's necessary. On yesterday's episode of The View, Behar had some fun arguing against the idea of adding the disclaimer, saying, quote, This dame disagrees with Dame Judi Dench because they tell you at the top that it is not a documentary. And if you have a brain, you can figure out that the writers have used history. No matter where you side on this idea between this back and forth now with Behar and Dench and all the dramatic changes that have taken place within the royal family, Netflix is getting plenty of free press for the next installment of The Crown. And now we're segueing into some much heavier territory. And just as a warning, this involves discussions of sexual assault. Actor Kevin Spacey was found not liable for battery in connection to the sexual assault claims of Broadway actor Anthony Rapp. 
Yesterday, CNN reported that a New York jury determined the House of Cards actor, who's 63, was not responsible for battery related to Raph's allegations that Spacey made a sexual advance on him when he was 14 years old. The jury concluded that there was insufficient evidence to prove Spacey inappropriately touched Raph. As you may recall, back in October of 2017, Rapp, who's now 50, accused Spacey of sexual misconduct. Spacey denied the allegations, but his career took a major hit. He was fired from House of Cards and replaced in the film All the Money in the World. In court, Rapp claimed he went to Spacey's home for a party. And once the pair was alone, Spacey allegedly forced himself on him, quote, by pinning him down in a bed. However, during the cross-examination, the Rent actor clarified that Spacey never attempted to touch his genitals, remove his clothing, or make any references to sex. He also denied having any sort of crush on or obsession with Spacey. But this win for Spacey comes just ahead of another battle. In May, the actor was charged with sexually assaulting three men in the UK. He pleaded not guilty to the charges in July, and he also pled not guilty to one charge of making a person engage in penetrative sexual activity without consent. Spacey's next UK trial is set to begin in June of next year. And like I said before with the last story, we're on to some uncomfortable but important topics on today's show. And with that in mind, we're turning our attention to Danny Masterson's ongoing sexual assault trial. Before we start this next segment, we want to give you all a trigger warning that this story involves sexual assault and abuse. Opening statements in Danny Masterson's sexual assault trial began on Tuesday after they wrapped up jury selection. You may remember Masterson from that 70s show where he played the almost too chill Stephen Hyde. According to the allegations of three women who are only referred to in court by their initials, JB, NT, and CB, he drugged and raped them. The deputy district attorney took the podium for over two hours in his opening statement and detailed the accusations that Masterson had sex with them without their consent. There's so much to break down and to understand in this story. So joining me now is New York attorney and host of the Law and Crime Network, Jesse Weber. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you are a legal correspondent for Fox, HLN, CNN, basically all the cable news networks out there. But for those who may not know about it, let's start at the beginning. When did these accusations come in? When were the original charges made? And and how did we get to the trial we're watching today? Yeah, it's interesting. We go back to March 2017, which I think a lot of people remember was when the height of the Me Too movement really was gaining steam. And that's when these allegations first became public. The LAPD had confirmed that there was an ongoing active investigation into sexual assault claims against Danny Masterson, but it wasn't until 2020 when official charges were filed against Masterson. And that was that he forcibly raped three women between 2001 and 2003 really disturbing accounts. They allegedly all happened at Masterson's home. He's pled not guilty. He's fighting this. He's going to trial. And there's a wrinkle that I think everybody should pay attention to, how serious this is. If he's convicted, he faces up to 45 years to life in prison. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned that the stories that the district attorney shared on Tuesday were anything if not graphic. And and I don't want to get too deep into the three nights of horror that these women allegedly suffered, but some of the stories involve references to Scientology, which Masterson practices, and so did his accusers at one point. Can you walk us through 
how the Church of Scientology played a part in these women's stories and why the judge decided to limit the discussion around it. Right. The judge has made it clear that this is not a trial about Scientology. That's not what this case is about, but it can be discussed in a, in a limited context. The reason is because the church reportedly played a major role in what happened. You have one accuser who was Masterson's ex-girlfriend. She allegedly reported her rape to an officer at the church, this ethics officer. And this is the quote, you can't rape your 2D. That's a, a second dynamic. That's a spouse or partner. So this this ethics officer told her, you can't rape your 2D. Don't ever use that word again. And then she was also allegedly told that she was part of an out exchange with Masterson, meaning that he takes care of her so that she has to give him sex whenever he wants it. You had another accuser who said that Masterson threatened her while using a gun, that he was using it while he was raping her. Really serious and disgusting allegation. She goes to an ethics officer at Scientology, and this officer allegedly tells her, quote, if you're going to tell me this is rape, it wasn't rape. You're not supposed to use that word. You're not allowed to go to the police. Doing so would be considered a high crime, and if you commit a high crime, you could be declared a suppressive person. What that means is that all the other people in the church have to detach from you, and you are essentially an enemy of the church. So obviously, you can see how big a role it plays here, but this is not going to be a large discussion on the church's practices or anything like that. Wow. Well, the first of the witnesses who goes by JD took the stand and, as you would expect, broke down recounting her alleged experience. What kind of impact did the victim make off the bat with everyone who was in court? And, and, and who else are we expected to see take the stand? So I should tell you, I actually covered the Harvey Weinstein trial out in New York. I was in that courtroom. When victims or alleged victims take the stand, that has a tremendous impact, unlike anything else. The first witness to set the stage in Masterson's trial is one of the alleged victims who says that Masterson raped her in 2003. And she testified that she woke up to Masterson raping her. She tried to fight him with a pillow. He grabs her wrists. He grabs her throat. She testified about how he squeezed so hard that she couldn't breathe. She thought that she was going to die. But this is where the story takes a really strange turn because she had actually entered into a settlement with Danny Masterson. She claims that she was paid $400,000, that she was forced to sign an NDA. Now, she claims that she was pressured into doing this by the church. And by the way, remember how difficult it is for any witness to testify, let alone a victim, because they're subject to cross-examination. And that's what we've seen. So Philip Cohen, who's representing Danny Masterson, he questioned her about inconsistencies in her story between what she's testifying now, what she first reported to police in 2004. And you said, who else do we expect to testify? Marty Singer, the high-powered entertainment attorney who helped to negotiate this settlement between Masterson and this alleged victim. He's on the prosecution's witness list. So this is just the start of a lot to come. Oh, wow. Well, throughout the years, Danny has always maintained his innocence. In fact, originally telling people in a statement when the charges were originally filed, quote, this is beyond ridiculous. He has, in fact, welcomed his day in court so that everyone can hear how these accusations have destroyed his life and that of his family, who appears to be by his side throughout all of this, right? So what is the defense saying just in general? And, and, and what do you think we can expect as the next headline out of this trial? 
basically that he never did this. That's the defense. He never did any of this. And they're trying to show this through a lack of evidence. Remember, this is from 20 years ago, which in and of itself is very difficult. Memories fade, evidence fades. But his attorneys are saying there's no rape kit. There's no voicemail evidence. There's no text message, things like that. And the main argument is that the prosecution can't meet their burden. They can't prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. So if he wins, you know what the next headline's going to be. He's going to take legal action against them. Absolutely. Jesse, thank you so much for being here and for taking us through the ins and outs of this case. Thank you so much for having me. And guys, if you or someone you know has been sexually assaulted, please contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Or go to rain.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. All right, I know those last two stories were heavy. So let's all just take a deep breath, think some happier thoughts. I don't know about you, but music is my go-to pick-me-up and really just helps me shake it off. (laughs) Coming up, we are joined by People's resident Taylor Swift fangirl, also an esteemed entertainment journalist, Melody Chu, as we take a deep dive into the album everyone is already talking about. Midnight's. But first, Taylor isn't the only one pumping out new music. After the break, we sample some new tracks on New Music Friday from artists like Lil Uzi Vert, Shakira, and Megan Trainer. So stay right there, and I'll meet you on the other side of the break with some new tunes to bop to. We are back, and it's time to get into one of my favorite segments of the week, New Music Friday. Rapper and Philly native Lil Uzi Vert has a new single out called I Just Wanna Rock. I don't know about you, but that song's giving me some eerie, organ, creepy, haunted house vibes, and I'm definitely digging it for a Halloween party playlist. Next up, Shakira might be in the midst of a legal battle over in Spain, but the Colombian singer isn't letting that slow her down. She's got a new song out with Ozuna called Monotonia. Maybe it's just the season we're in, but this one is also coming at you with some Halloween energy, right? In the music video for Monotonia, you see Shakira take a blast from some sort of bazooka to the chest, and then she wakes up with a huge hole in her chest and runs around town with her heart in her hand. I know it sounds wild, but you'll just have to see it for yourself. And last but not least, Megan Trainer has another pop single coming your way called Made You Look. And I gotta say, I'm feeling it. I mean, that girl just knows how to make a catchy song, right? I feel like that's one that is going to be stuck in my head all weekend long. Well, I hope you're all warmed up with some new music on this Friday because it's time to get deep into the new album you've all been waiting for. Taylor Swift's more than highly anticipated new album, Midnight's, is 
finally here and the Swifties are ready to hang on to every lyric of this 13-track album that dropped last night, plus an additional seven songs that dropped at 3 a.m. Yep, Miss Swift kept fans up late last night. Bloomberg even reported that thousands of Spotify users reported outages because, you know, everyone wanted to hear the album immediately. In August at the MTV Video Music Awards, the pop superstar announced that she would be releasing her 10th studio album while making history as the only artist to win for Video of the Year three times. She said the album is, quote, the story of 13 sleepless nights scattered throughout my life and, quote, a collection of music written in the middle of the night, a journey through terrors and sweet dreams. Well, as always, there's a lot to talk about here, especially decoding Easter eggs. Yes, we'll get into all of that. Joining me now to discuss it all is one of the biggest Swifties I know, People's Senior Entertainment Editor and my girl, Melody Chu. Hey, Mel, how much sleep did you get last night after this drop? Hi, Janine. Oh, my God. I'm so tired. Taylor said sleepless, and she wasn't kidding. (laughs) So the first song off this album is called Lavender Haze. I love that title. A song Taylor previously teased on TikTok that was inspired by the TV show Mad Men and is about being in the all-encompassing love glow. Of course, this song is about Taylor Swift's boyfriend of six years, Joe Alwyn, who also wrote one of the songs on Midnight's, but more on that in a minute. In our first Easter egg breakdown, fans think this song is also clapping back at engagement rumors, right, Mel? Yeah, so it's a love song, but it's so interesting because... It is clapping back, sort of. I think there's been reports that she's secretly married, secretly has a baby, is pregnant, is engaged. And I guess that's not surprising. They've been together six years, but it it is sort of weird to have people be speculating about, you know, the status of your relationship at all times. I think the lyric was like, one night or a bride, which I loved that. For so long, she was shamed for dating too many people. And then now it's like, everyone wants her to get married. And I thought that was a clever little clap back. I I love that line. All they keep asking me is if I'm going to be your bride. The only kind of girl they see is a one night or a wife. Ooh, Yeah, that was a good one. (laughs) And then the rest of the song, of course, you know, is about Lavender Haze and being so in love and having this safe little bubble. So Joe's presence is everywhere throughout this album. She sings about him on other songs and co-wrote the track Sweet Nothing with him. Fans know he used his famous pseudonym, William Bowery, to do that. So tell us more about the clues Taylor leaves about their relationship on all of these tracks. Yeah, so Sweet Nothing, not to steal from the title, but it's a very sweet song about when the world is so crazy, you can just go home and kind of have, again, this safe, secure place with your partner. Um, And there is little hints at their personal life together. Like I think they spent time in the last year in Ireland because he was filming conversations with friends. And so the opening line is something about how they brought a stone home and they found it in his pocket from Ireland. And and yeah, it's just like sweet little insight like that. Interesting, after six years, a lot of these love songs are about those early days, I think, and feeling the hesitation, like, am I ready to be in a relationship and go through all of 
the speculation and all the drama again. Like she's sort of realizing like, oh, I'm in love. Is it okay? And then there are others, like we just talked about Sweet Nothing, that are much more like, oh, we're secure and happy in our relationship. And and this is six years in. So you get kind of both sides of the coin. I just don't know how she does it. These Easter eggs are always so clever. And so Midnight's isn't just about love. It's also about revenge. We have songs like Vigilante-ish. Now she gets the house, gets the kids, gets the pride. Picture me, thickest thieves with your ex-wife. So what's your reaction when you first heard these songs? And what do you think Taylor, you know, could be singing about? So when I first heard Vigilante, I immediately thought, of her feud with Scooter. Because, you know, he went through that very public divorce with, the lyrics are about sort of like teaming up with the ex-wife and your thickest leaves. To me, it sounds like a midnight musings of dreaming of really taking the other side and teaming up with a woman and-, and Ooh, the takedown. You know, taking down your nemesis. Yeah, yeah. And it's very dramatic. I hope there's a music video coming about this. And I think there's a line in Karma where she talks about how he made a crown out of her pennies which I thought that was another dig at Scooter buying her masters and making money. Spider boy, king of these, weave your little webs of opacity. My pennies made your crown. But then I saw a lot of speculation that it might be about Kim and Kanye. I don't know. There, there, there are quite a few options here. Oh my goodness. Well, people are saying that this album is picking up kind of where 1989 and Reputation left off, which I am so here for. We've talked about this, Mel. Those are my two. That was my Taylor, okay? So how does it match up in the, you know, the discography? Yeah, totally. I agree with that assessment. And I think Evermore and Folklore were were folktales and about mostly other people's lives. And now she's getting back to her own life. It's clear so many of these songs are about moments that she's been through, breakups, falling in love, all this revenge. I love Snow on the Beach, the one with Lana. Honestly, I I love Vigilante. If you're feeling petty today, that is the one to go to. (laughs) (laughs) I love Mel, thank you so much for being here on this very important New Music Friday. We could not have done it without you. And guys, Taylor Swift's 10th studio album, Midnight's, is out everywhere now. Thanks so much, Mel. Thanks, Janine. Well, I don't want to send you guys into the weekend on an empty stomach. And lucky for you, we have a delicious update to the Olivia Wilde salad dressing story. And this time, it's getting less juicy and more savory. As you know by now, the former nanny for Olivia Wilde and Jason Sudeikis tossed up some new details surrounding the end of their relationship. She revealed that the Ted Lasso star's realization that Wilde was seeing someone else came down to salad dressing. Apparently, the Booksmart director made this special salad dressing for budding boo Harry Styles, and now the internet just can't handle it. Then after the story made the rounds, Wilde posted an excerpt from the book Heartburn to social media, which laid out the recipe for this special Grey Poupon-based salad dressing. Well, the folks at Grey Poupon 
clearly know an opportunity when they see one because they are releasing some limited edition Don't Worry Dijon mustard jars. <laughs> yes, you heard that right. The Condiment Company featured a picture of one of the jars wearing a red boa, because of course, on their Instagram with the caption reading, you too could win someone over with a dash of Grey Poupon with our limited edition <laughs> Don't Worry Dijon jars. Stay tuned for how you can get your hands on one. Oh my goodness. According to a representative for the brand, there are only 100 Don't Worry Dijon jars. And in order to snag one, all fans of pop culture, shade, or condiments need to do is follow their IG account and await instructions. I just love that we've reached the spicy mustard portion of this Don't Worry Darling drama. Just let me know when we get to the ice cream round for all of this. <laughs> Maybe we'll get the, the new Revenge is a Dish Best Served Cold Darling Blizzard from Dairy Queen. <laughs> You guys, I didn't write that. One of my producers did, and I love you for it. <laughs> and on that note, that's our show for today. Thanks, as always, for being here with us. Enjoy your weekend, and I'll talk to you all again on Monday on a brand new week of People Every Day. People Every Day is produced by Chrissy Lindquist, Tony Mantia, Amy Machado, and Madison Lesby. Edited by Morgan Foose, Carter Wogan, and Michael Aquino and made with help from Patrick Vermillion and the great team at Pod People. People's producers are me, Janine Rubenstein, and Charlotte Triggs. Our show is associate produced by Eliza Sessler and Fallon Harge, and executive produced by David Flumenbaum and Zoe Ruderman. <laughs>